Well, this morning, um, you have had in front of you a, a statement from Dr. Scott Daniels. He was our guest speaker at the uh, training that I attended this week. And early on in the week, he was sharing about the church that he grew up in. And he has a heritage of, of pastors as father and grandfather, etc. And someone asked his, I can't remember if it was his father or his grandfather, why they had these benches in their church. He said, that just doesn't make sense to me. Why do you have these pieces of furniture here? And the answer that his father or grandfather gave is what you've seen on the screen all morning long. These altars are benches that we have set here for one use only. When we sense that God has moved toward us and we have no other choice but to move towards him. And that, I didn't take a lot of notes this week, but that was the primary number one note that was at the top of my, my sheet of notes. And I have wrestled with that. And now, I'm not even thinking about the furniture, the benches. That's not what I was focusing on. But the part in this, this statement is when we sense that God has moved toward us, we have no other choice but to move towards him. My wife asked me on Friday night, um, what did you get out of this training? And I shared this with her and she said, well, she tried to engage me in conversation about it. I said, ah, I haven't had a chance to really think through this yet or to, to, to journal about it or anything. And I still haven't really had a lot of time. But as I was praying and I said, Lord, what do you want your people to hear this morning? He brought me back to this. And then he brought me on this little quick odyssey of things that I want to share with you this morning. But it was interesting, the scripture that he brought me to was this story of, of Samuel learning the voice of God. Because it is exactly this idea. Here's this little boy, he doesn't control his life. His mom rears him up with the understanding that she prayed for this child and she said, God, if you will give me a child, I will give him back to you. And then she, by faith, rears this child, weans him, and then brings him back to the church and says, he's God's. So I can't even imagine that as a, as a parent or a grandparent. I can't even imagine taking this baby that I love and have weaned and nurtured and cared for and is now who's now able to sustain life without me, bringing this child and saying, here, I'll only see you once a year now, but here, because this is your place now, Oh, I don't understand that. I can't even imagine that. But it was apparently God's purpose and plan for this young boy, Samuel. And as I said to the kids just a few minutes ago, we are not given in the scriptures how old Samuel was through all of this process. We know that he had been weaned, which at that in that culture would have meant three, maybe four years of age. He would have been brought to the temple, to the tabernacle at Shiloh. Uh, to be put into service for God. But then it says that every year his mother would bring him a new set of clothes because he was a growing boy. But we're not told how many sets of clothes or how many years have passed. 
So we know that he's older than three or four years of age. We know that a number of years have passed. So this child could be anywhere from five or six years of age all the way up to age 11. Why do I know age 11? Because in the Jewish culture, age 12 is when they enter into the, the age of responsibility and they are bar mitzvahed. And they are now responsible to God for themselves. So to be called a boy, he should be somewhere between the ages of five or six and 11 years of age. So he's a boy. He is um, not yet, quote unquote, reached the age of responsibility before God. But God has already drawn him. God has already set him aside He did that through a transaction with mom, but he's now doing the actual interaction with the boy himself. And the thing that was intriguing about this, God didn't collaborate with Eli. God didn't say, hey, Eli, on this date, I want Samuel to begin hearing my voice. So you need to start training him. Okay, because if you look at the story, Eli is laying in bed, fat, dumb and happy, literally fat, dumb and happy. And he is laying there and hasn't a clue that God is trying to reach out to Samuel. And the first couple, three times he gets it wrong as the priest, as the pastor, as the spiritual leader of this child. He said, just get it, go back to bed. Leave me alone. Stop bugging me. I'm trying to sleep. But finally, something dawns. And now, to not make Eli feel bad, because, you know, it's not his fault, even though he wasn't doing the best job as a priest. If you go to the very first line, or the first couple of verses in chapter one, uh, chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, it says, the word of the Lord was uncommon, or was infrequent, or I don't remember the exact phrase. Well, let me just look it up real quick. First Samuel chapter three, verse one. Now the voice Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in that in those days. There was no frequent vision. So the word of the Lord coming to a human being was rare. It was not frequent. It didn't happen that often. But it was happening now. And Eli thankfully had the presence, the the spiritual understanding to be able to say, hey, something's going on here that's pretty unique and pretty spectacular. And Samuel, this is what you need to do. So then Samuel does what he was told. I mean, he's a kid. Okay, I'll go back to bed. And when he calls again, if he calls again, I will say these words. And then God imparts to Samuel this very dark, powerful message. And Samuel, scared to death, I don't want to say those words to Eli. These are bad words. I mean, if you re- if you take the time to read the story, God is saying to Samuel, to Eli, through Samuel, uh, I have weighed you and found you wanting, and you and your family are done as the priests. As a matter of fact, you're going to know that my word is true because on the very same day, both of your boys are going to die. And as we know, on that same day when he died, when the boys died, when Eli gets word, Eli falls off of his stool and he dies too. Now, I'm not sure 
how it all played out because we're not given all of that. But somehow Samuel now comes into play as the, the prophet or the priest. Okay, the leader, the spiritual leader. I'm not, we're not given how that all happened from the time of the death of Eli to the time of Samuel taking full responsibility. But somehow, some way, Samuel rises up to become this incredible prophet. And he is literally the, he's the last prophet slash king, last, the prophet slash leader, if you will, of the nation of Israel, priest leader, because then there's the separation because the people of Israel say, we want a king just like everybody else. And Samuel's all upset. Well, they're rejecting me and they're rejecting you, God. And God said, that's okay. Just, just do what they ask. And he anoints Saul. So, but I want to focus on this idea of, of, well, there's two ideas. Number one, someone who's never heard God, doesn't know, doesn't know God intimately, can begin to sense or hear the voice of God in their life. They may not recognize it as God. But they are hearing it. And it's it's intriguing to me that even a child can hear the voice of God. Not know what's going on, not recognize it, have to be instructed in it. But that indeed, they're hearing the voice of God. God is calling them, drawing them. He's being called to a lifetime of service. He's going to be used in a powerful and mighty way. And I don't think it's all that unusual, quite honestly. I mean, yeah, we we don't have lots of stories in the Bible of God speaking to children. But honestly, I think that it happens quite more often than we realize. I mean, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have known someone who got saved at a very, very young age? And has lived for God their whole life? and, And is honoring God even into their old age? And their testimony is, I came to faith when I was four, at my grandmother's knee. Or, you know, my mama asked me one night as we were getting ready to pray, did I want to pray and ask Jesus into my life? Of course, and I did. And I haven't ever left. So it can be genuine and real. It's not just made up. This is something that really and truly happens. The other side of this is that Samuel couldn't recognize the voice of God until somebody told him what it was. And thankfully, Eli... Had the presence to be able to go, oh, wow, maybe, maybe God's really talking to this kid. And then to be able to translate that into a way to the kid, that the kids would be able to understand. Even if it wasn't exactly right. I mean, he didn't nurture him and, and encourage him. He just simply said, go to bed. And if he talks to you again, just say these words. But he did give him specific instruction on what to do and how to respond. And then little by little, I would think, and again, we're not given any of this in the scriptures, but as Samuel is growing in his newfound understanding that God does speak to me and that I can hear God and I can respond and that God will respond and we can have a conversation, Samuel has learned how to discern the voice of God through his life to the point where at the end of his life, or at the end of his time as the prophet, he can have a conversation with God. Remember the story when Samuel got to um, to Jesse's house? To anoint King David. And God literally had a conversation with Jesse. I mean with, with Samuel. Not, not that one. Oh, look at this one. Nope, not that one. Oh, look at this one. Nope, not that one. Remember that? That was a conversation between Samuel and the father. And then finally, Samuel, fully convinced that he's hearing correctly from God, says, 
do you have any other kids? Because none of these are the ones I'm supposed to do anoint. And then Jesse goes, well, yeah, we get the run of the litter. He's he's out in the field with the sheep. Well, we're not even going anywhere with our our ceremony or our, our dinner until you bring him here. And then when David comes in the door, all of a sudden God whispers to Samuel, he's the one, anoint him. So this little boy who doesn't know what God's voice is, comes to the point in his ministry where he knows God's voice so well that he has a conversation with God. How does that come about? Practice. How does that come about? Nurture of the gift. Nurture of the skill. But it initially started when someone more experienced in the faith comes alongside the one who doesn't recognize that it's God talking and says, it's probably God. And this is how you can begin responding. Now, as I was sorting through all of that, and, and for my own, in my, in my thought process, one of the scripture verses that God pointed me to was found in John chapter 6, verse 44. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. Verse 41 says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that come down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Don't grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And he goes on and talks about different things. But there's that one statement in verse 44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That, it's not necessarily healthy to build a theology on one verse, but that verse is a very strong foundation to the theology, or the theological point that we in the Church of the Nazarene and the Wesleyan Arminian tradition have called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is an act of God. It is when God, even before you are interested in God, God begins reaching out to you. God begins calling your name. God begins drawing your attention to God. Let me share you from my own personal experience. I was brought up in the Roman Catholic faith. So I was taught theology from the time I was young. I was, I was uh, first grade age, so six or seven years of age, where I was taught that Jesus is the Son of God, there is a God, a Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus was buried in the tomb, that on the third day God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and that Jesus ascended into heaven is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, that God the Father sent the Holy Spirit of God down into the earth so that it could inhabit all Christians, all people who are followers of God through Jesus. And someday Jesus is going to return and come back to call his people home to be with the father. I was taught all of that at age six. 
And I expressed my belief in that at age six. And I was able to receive my very first time taking communion, the, 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 the Eucharist, it's called in the Catholic faith. So I was reared in believing. And it was never an issue for me. I, I mean, I went to, to what we called CCD, which was like Sunday school. It was done on Saturday afternoon, so they didn't call it Sunday school. But it was, it was, it was a catechism. It was teaching us the faith, teaching us what we believe. And as you got older, you got more and more in depth. So there was a training going on. But I was about 14 or 15, maybe, when my brother Jeff and my sister Kelly went through their training for their first Holy Communion. And in the particular church we were in, this was in Rhode Island, the particular church we were in in Rhode Island, the priest there who was the pastor of that particular congregation said, I want all of the family members to come forward with the children when they receive their first Holy Communion. I want this to be a family event, not just a procession of little ones. And so when it came time for Jeff and Kelly to go forward, my mom and my dad and all of us got up and we walked to the front and we received communion. And as I, I was standing there before the priest and he said to me, the body of Christ. And I said, amen. I opened my mouth and he placed the wafer into my mouth. I became overwhelmed by the sense of holy. I became just overwhelmed with holy love. And the process was you walk down the middle aisle to the front of the church, the body of Christ, amen, and then you turned either to the left or the right to go back to your seats. So I walked up, we start, we turned left and started walking that we would then go back down the side aisle to go to our seats. But instead of going down the side aisle, there was, when I turned left and was walking towards the side wall, there was a door, an exit. And I just walked straight out that door. My family went back to their seats. My mom and dad hadn't a clue where I was headed because I didn't tell them. And I walked out of the church at age 14. And I stood outside of that church, leaning against the wall, weeping. God. And all I kept saying over and over again was, I love my family. I love my family. I love my family. Oh God, I love my family. Now, I had no one in my life at that point who was giving me any spiritual instruction about real spiritual things. But what I can look back on now and understand was I was being, for the very first time in my life, I was touching the holy. For the very first time in my life, I was truly experiencing the Shekinah of God, the glory of God, and I was made aware of the fact that God is all love. And I was overwhelmed by this powerful sense of love. And I couldn't express it other than to just say, I love my family, I love my family, I love my family. Because I wasn't reared to say, I love God. You don't say that. You say, we praise you, O God, we worship you, O God, but you don't love God. I mean, that wasn't part of my tradition. So I couldn't express any of that. But it was there and it was real and it was genuine. Now, fast forward a couple of months. I have um, a friend from high school. And I don't remember all of the circumstances. But she and I were involved with the theater group at the, at the high school. She had gotten involved with a theater group downtown. A, a semi-professional, community-style theater group. And she was doing a production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Superstar. 
No, was it Jesus Christ Superstar or was it Godspell? One of the two. I don't remember which. This is back in the 70s. And she was, one night we were just visiting, she and I and a couple, three other people, and she began sharing with me the story of the, of the, of the, of the play. And then she began sharing with me how the people in this cast were just being overwhelmed with this incredible spiritual just closeness of God and this sense of God's love. And, and I was just, I was drawn. I wanted that. I wanted to experience what she was experiencing. And now fast forward a few more months. My dad is in the Navy. He gets reassigned. We are leaving Rhode Island. We're now moving to Southern California. And we get to Southern California and we first find a house in this one community and we live there for two weeks and then I start making friends and I get involved with the local theater group at the school and I'm excited. And then my dad says, oh, we can't afford to live here. We're moving to military housing. And so we moved and went to a totally different school system. I was mortified. I was devastated because I was excited about finally having some friends and it was such a hard thing to move across the country. And now I got these friends and they're taking me away from this again. But God moved me into this other school. And within just a few weeks of being in that school, I'm involved with a group of people who are part of the theater and the choir who just two years ago, about 20 of them all got saved. And they're all on fire for God. And they're all evangelizing their friends. And so I'm walking across campus one day because we had an open campus. Our, we had a, it was kind of like a college campus, community college. We had a science building and a history building and an English building and the gym and the theater. And so there was a lot of park area that you hang out in. And so we were walking from one building to the other. And my friend Susan said to me, Bob, are you a Christian? And I said, of course I'm a Christian. I've been reared as a Christian. I've been a baby, you know, baptized and first Holy communion all day. And she said, well, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Huh? What? Never heard those words. What are you talking about? And she shared with me what it meant. And we went on to class for three solid weeks. No one else said a word to me about having a personal relationship with Jesus. No one. But the Holy Spirit. I couldn't get away from that thought. What does it mean to have a personal relationship with Jesus? Oh, wow. I, I, I go to church all the time. I take communion. I, I, I confess my sins. What, what, it, what, what is this personal relationship? And I literally wrestled with this inside. Never talked with anybody about it. I couldn't get away from it. It wouldn't leave me alone. And then finally, a friend of mine invited me to go to a Saturday night concert at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. And at the end of the concert, Pastor Chuck Smith would come out and stand on the platform and he would preach. And then at the end of the sermon, he would give an offer, I mean, a, a, an altar call. And people went forward. Now, I did not go forward during his altar call. But we were driving home. And as we were driving home, there was about eight or nine of us in this car that would hold five. You know what teenagers do. And so I'm literally sitting in the back seat with somebody sitting next to me and somebody sitting next to them and two people sitting on top of us in the back seat. And I literally, as we're driving down the freeway in Southern California, I feel something press on my head and my shoulders. Some heaviness, some deep, heavy pressing. Now, there's nobody behind me. I'm in the back seat. Somebody's pressing on top of me, but nobody's pressing behind me. And all of a sudden, I feel this presence go through my skin and go down into the very core of where my heart is. And I begin feeling this heat. And I begin weeping. 
And I start saying, I'm saved, I know that I'm saved, I can feel it. And no sooner did I say those words, than this heat turned into bile. And I began, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up, get me out of the car, I'm going to throw up. And the person driving the car pulls off to the side of the road, and all nine of us pile out of this car made for five. And instantly, this inside of me starts saying, throw yourself in front of the passing cars, Bob. And I vocalized that. And my friends panicked and made a circle around me, grabbing their arms to keep me from throwing myself in front of the cars that were passing. And they were praying. Now the whole time, I'm shaking violently. I'm feeling this burning bile inside of me. And everything is just chaos inside of me. And somebody says... Let's take him to Ginger's house. She'll know what to do. And so all nine of us pile back into this car made for five. And we drive. Now it's 11-ish at night on a Saturday night. And we knock on the door and this young woman comes out. She had just got graduated the year before. But she was part of this 20 plus that had gotten saved. And she had the gift of discernment and wisdom. And she came out onto the onto the driveway all of us are around there. I'm still shaking, bile, vomit, gotta kill myself, I can't. And they, she asks me a series of questions. And then finally, she says to me, Bob, the enemy of our souls is fighting for your soul right now. The enemy of our souls has had you for 16 years. And he knows he's losing you. Because he knows that God has been wooing you and drawing you. And he knows that he's about to lose you. So he's doing everything he can to seal your fate. It choice is yours, Bob. Do you want to accept Jesus as your personal savior and enter into right relationship with God? Yes. Then let's pray. And she led me in prayer. And as I prayed a prayer asking Jesus to forgive me of my sins... And as I asked God to come into my life, I literally stopped shaking. I felt the bile gone, the anxiety and all of the chaos left. And I literally felt as if it started here and washed out of the soles of my feet. I experienced the peace of God. Now, I couldn't vocalize. I didn't, I didn't have the words to say this is the peace of God that's filling me. But I could express that it was real. And I could, ex- I could say I'm really feeling this. And this is amazing. And through time and care and spiritual formation, I was taught to be able to share with you what I just shared with you. And it's been 40 years I'm walking with Jesus. It's real. It's vital. It's alive. But it started by God exposing himself, his glory, his Shekinah, his holy love to me in a religious service where I wasn't even expecting to, to interact with God. I had no one to tell me what I was experiencing, but it was overwhelming and real. And then God backed off. And over a period of months, little by little, began calling me and drawing me. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew that more and more my attention and focus was being drawn to the Father until ultimately about nine months later 
I'm standing on a driveway at 1130 at night in Southern California asking Jesus to be my Savior. I'm now a pastor in a holiness denomination. I've served for 14 plus years. And I am thrilled at who I am in Christ and what I have and why I have it. And it's just glorious and it's amazing to me. But it's because someone came alongside me and helped me to understand what it was that God was doing in my life. See, prevenient grace is real. Prevenient grace is God woos, God draws. It's this statement on the board. When we sense that God has moved toward us, we have no other choice but to move towards him. The problem is, so many of us don't have anyone in our life to come alongside us to help us to understand this wooing that's taking place. And until we do, now God is God. God is perfectly capable of saving a soul even if no other Christian comes alongside to help that person. But it's so much easier if someone will come alongside them and walk them through the process and help them to understand what's happening. And I think that's why God wanted you to hear this because I truly believe with all of my heart God has someone in your life that is ripe for the harvest. Hold on. One thing, I want to read this statement out of, out of this is a theology dictionary, Beacon Dictionary of Theology, talking about prevenient grace, written by a man named J. Kenneth Greider. He says the very last paragraph in his, um, in his um, definition on the term prevenient grace One thing this doctrine means is that God does not meet us halfway. But instead, God comes all the way to where we are and initiates in us the first desires to be saved. Thus, the importance of intercessory prayer for unsaved persons. God doesn't say, I'll meet you halfway. God comes to where you are, in your vileness, in the muck, in the mud. God's not afraid to get his feet wet or dirty. God's not afraid to sit next to you in your vomit. Because God's whole purpose is holy love, drawing and wooing. And if that's the only place that he can intersect you, then so be it. So... I encourage you, and that's what I wanted to say to you guys. I encourage you this morning. There is some person, one person that's in your life that is ripe for the harvest. And you need to be watching for opportunities to say to them, did you hear that? Do you recognize what that is? That's the voice of God. And when he calls again, don't come running to me and ask me about it. Lay on your bed and say, here I am, Lord. What do you want to say to me? And then continue to pray for them. So that when they do hear God's voice again, they will respond. And they will give their heart to him. And they'll begin this journey that brings such peace and comfort and joy and glory. Let's pray.